Welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. Um, well, welcome uh, to Trinity Life Church. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, really excited about uh, just you know the season that we're in. And if this is uh, your first time, you know, at our church, we just want to say welcome. We're really excited that you're here. I know that a lot of people are traveling during this time of year, so it's very um, uh, you know we're very honored to have you here as guests. So um, there's a connection card uh, that was passed to you uh, as you came in, so you get a chance maybe. Even during through my sermon, whatever it doesn't matter when, uh, get a chance to just fill that out to let us know that you were here, and that gives us a chance to just uh, send you an email. We won't we won't hound you. We we'll just send you an email just to say thank you for being here today. And so, um, man, this is going to be uh, a lot of fun this morning, kind of talking about not just um, the message that we're in, but I also want to share with some of you guys who are been plugging into the church maybe uh, you know for the first time the last couple of months. Uh, just a few opportunities that we have coming up where you can kind of further along your involvement. And some of these are coming up really quick, actually. Um, the first is our St. James Town Christmas uh, dinner that's happening uh, this coming week, this Wednesday, actually. And so because we won't be having services um, uh, for, for next weekend because the school board is closed, we're actually investing a lot of our time and our energy into making this a great event for uh, a neighborhood that we love so much. And so... There's a chance for you to get involved in very many different ways, and so Sap is here, um, and uh, if you get a chance later, uh, I don't see him, I know he's here, I don't see him in here right now, um, but when you get a chance, uh, you can go outside and you see the gifts out there on the table, that's not for you to take, okay, that's actually for the Christmas party that's happening on Wednesday, um, and we're doing a lot of things like toy drives, and we're making food, and we're going to be hosting the event, or I'm sorry, serving at the event, so it's a great way to get plugged in, um, and um, I'm sure SAP has plenty of other things for you to be involved with as well. And then also, um, you know, we, uh, we, although we're a newer church ourselves, we've been around for three years, we also value starting new churches to reach those who typically wouldn't come to a traditional existing church. And so one of the churches that we partner with is out in Milton called House of, uh, House of Prayer International, led by Yusuf Massa. And uh, they are reaching South Asian people, uh, people who typically wouldn't come to a church. And so we're very excited about what is happening through their work in Milton. Uh, Milton is a booming, uh, you know, uh, suburb of the GTA, and it's just, it's just growing. And so uh, Yusuf, you can see kind of their house church um, meeting there right now. They actually meet in a building now. And so we're going to be praying for them, uh, you know, uh, during our offering. And then this is also a chance for you to bless them. Now, I realize that not everybody had a chance to, you know, prepared to come this morning, um, but there's, you can give online as well and just designate to, uh, uh, to that as well. And so later on, uh, Mike will share a bit more about that. And then lastly is um, we are running a course called Alpha, and Alpha is a class for anybody who is investigating Christianity. And so maybe you kind of grew up going to church, but you never really understood the, the heart and soul of what the faith was about. So Alpha is a format where you can come and you can ask any kind of question. It's a video-based teaching, uh, a video-based curriculum. But uh, even even though that's the case, you can ask your own 
questions and our facilitators are equipped to maybe not answer your, all of your questions, but to actually kind of walk through some of the things that you have, um, that you have uh, maybe objections or maybe just questions about the faith in general. So that'll be starting up in January. And if you're uh, interested in that in your connection card, just check it out. Just say, I'd like to hear more about Alpha or something like that. All right. Well, cool. Those are some announcements, and we'll have a few more a little bit later. Uh, but I wanted to start off talking about how you know Christmas is celebrated all around the globe. Um, it didn't start off as a commercial holiday, but that's kind of what it's become, right? Uh, lights and gifts and stuff like that. Uh, somewhere in Europe, we institutionalize um, uh, Christmas, uh, as Europe is very good at doing, institutionalized things. And then uh, I'm an American, and so somewhere in America, we did what we're good at doing, and we commercialized Christmas. We enterprised it. Um, and so began exporting it around the world. And so somewhere in Asia today, Christmas looks like this. <laughs> no. I was asking myself, why KFC? Uh, <laughs> I've, I've traveled to Asia, and KFC, is, including communist countries, uh, KFC is one of the few uh, fast food chains that are, are, you know, are kind of like you know, popular in uh, in Asian countries, and so I don't know, but uh, this week a lot of Japanese people are going to be hitting up KFC. So I, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but that's what they do in Japan for Christmas is they eat KFC. Uh, so thank you, capitalism, uh, for the great job. Uh, to the church's credit, though, uh, Christmas gatherings like ours today, uh, we're gonna be, we, they tend to focus on the heartwarming story of the nativity, right? The birth of Jesus. Uh, uh, as a baby. Uh, if I had to admit, uh, growing up, for me, that was Christmas. It was a story of uh, God becoming a baby. That was Christmas. I and mean, so, uh, honestly, if I had to admit as a kid, I would say, hey, let's sing happy birthday to Jesus. Uh, let's, you know, uh, shake the hands of the three wise men and play, and then let's open presents and we can hurry up and get to the KFC. That was really what I thought, you know, minus the KFC part. But Christmas isn't just about the nativity scene. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's a, it's a very beautiful scene that uh, all preachers, all pastors love to talk about this scene. As a matter of fact, there's nothing more heartwarming to, than to think about this idea that God, who is the creator of the universe, would actually incarnate, that's kind of the word that we use, and that would actually become like one of us, uh, and especially as a child. There's nothing warmer than thinking about that. But it's too tempting to skip over um, the why of Christmas. Because you see, the nativity is about the how of Christmas. It's about how, how things happen. But if we just focus on the how, we're going to quickly step over or skip over the why of Christmas. Um, so it's kind of like this. It's kind of like, a, you know, you can watch Star Wars Episode Four and watch it over and over and over again. And, or watch Road One. I don't know if you've seen that yet. I won't ruin it for you. But eventually, you're going to want to watch Star Wars Episode One. Minus Jar Jar Binks. Uh, but eventually you're going to want to watch part one because you need to know the why in order for the how to be meaningful. So it's the why that actually makes the how meaningful and beautiful. So I actually think that if we talk about the why of Christmas today, that um, if you believe in Jesus, that he'll become even more uh, beautiful to you. And if you don't yet, if you're still learning about Jesus, that this may be an opportunity where you, in your first uh, chance ever, to fall in love with uh, uh, someone who we call our Savior. The last few weeks, we looked at messages from Isaiah written 700 years before Christmas. And so because Isaiah is such an ancient book, uh, it gives us a good idea of what life is like in the world before Christmas. 
You ever think about that? What was life in the world before Christmas ever happened? Well, Isaiah gives you a picture of that. And the world was brutal, actually. Here's a picture of um, a way to think about it. On the left side is northern Israel in 722 B.C. And this is actually, a, you know, it, it, obviously it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a painting or a drawing. But this is the scene from which Assyria sieges Israel, which leads to the ten tribes of the twelve being lost forever. This is in the time uh, of Isaiah. This is right before Isaiah is writing all these things. But Isaiah lived in the south, um, in the northern part of what we would call Samaria. Uh, that part was besieged by Assyria in 722 BC. And this is the context in which Isaiah is writing. On the right here you see is a scene from Aleppo, uh, which happened um, this year. And this is after the Syrian government sanctioned airstrikes on the city and what's left over. So I want you to understand that this, this here, this picture here, this is the before Christmas picture. And this is obviously after Christmas. This is 722 BC, this is 2016 AD, but this is the why of Christmas. And if you don't understand this scene, then you don't really understand why Jesus had to come. You see, we're, we're focused on this idea today that Jesus was the Prince of Peace. He was the um, uh, one of the counselor of mighty God, everlasting Father. But a title that Isaiah gives him that the kids read for us earlier is that he's also called the Prince of Peace. And to you and I, that we live in North America, that this doesn't seem like our everyday occurrence, but to Isaiah, it was their everyday occurrence. And there are people in the world where this is their everyday reality. And so Prince of Peace may just sound like a, you know, a very nice term to you, but to, to these people, Prince of Peace is a big deal. When Isaiah is writing there, the Messiah who is coming will be the Prince of Peace. He is saying that this will come to an end. This is the why of Christmas. And so all throughout history, power and class is based on birthright, race, nationality. Hitler's regime confirms that this, isn't, this evil isn't just a religious problem, by the way. Uh, it's a human problem. It's naturalism taking its natural course. And for us, 2,000 years later, 2,000 years AD, it's hard to remember a time without knowing Jesus' influence on the peace and the justice of the modern world. Think about that. We live in a time 2,000 years into us fleshing out Jesus' teachings in the modern world. There are notions that we get to enjoy that originated in the person of Jesus. Things like human rights, things like equality. These things originated in Jesus' teachings and his examples. We are living that. We get to receive that 2,000 years into it. Think about this. Benefits today in and I don't want to make it more mistaken, but there are, there are things in India that they're benefiting from um, in the last century only because Gandhi took the Sermon on the Mount serious. There are things about human rights that are being experienced now for the first time in that region only because this person who wasn't a Christian, by the way, he took serious Jesus' teachings on morals and it's transforming a nation just 50 years into it. The French atheist philosopher uh, Luke, uh, my, weak, my French is very weak, I think it's pronounced Ferry, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he wrote a book about the evolution of human thinking over the last 2,000 years. And this is what he has to say about the influence of Christianity in the world. He says, free will becomes the determining factor of the morality of inaction. With this idea, Christianity revolutionized the history of thought. Keep in mind, this, this guy's not a, he's not a believer. For the first time in human history, liberty rather than nature 
had become the foundation of morality. It was about this idea of freedom, not, not how you were born or where you were born, or which family you were born into, but it's this idea that liberty belongs to all of us. And at the same time, the idea of equal dignity of all human beings makes its first appearance. And Christianity was to become the precursor of modern democracy. He goes on to say, We see today how civilizations that have not experienced Christianity have great difficulties in fostering democratic regimes because the notion of equality is not so deep-rooted. Now, Fleury, Fleury, is that how how you pronounce it? Fleury, okay. Uh, He's not equating Christianity with democracy. That's not what he's doing. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that Jesus launched a modern movement that put a stake in the ground that says all human beings have equal dignity. Jesus blew up the ancient adage that says, you are your lot in your life. He blew that up. No longer applies when Jesus came on the scene. That was never God's design, never his intent. Human invention. Never, never God's plan. He blew that up. And so if you ever, ever thought that you are your situation, that it's just, you know, it's my background, it's my ethnicity, it's where I come from, it's my gender, um, this is my education, I just have to live with it. That was never God's plan for you. Never part of it. That's not what he wants. And this is the basic message of Isaiah, that God has better planned. So Isaiah 9, which the kids just read uh, for us, and if you don't mind, I, let me just, I'd like to read it just one more time. Um, and uh, to keep it fresh in our mind, Isaiah 9, starting with verse 2. Isaiah writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle to halt, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see what Isaiah is doing right now is he's setting the global stage for how this good news is going to be delivered to the rest of the world for all of history. He's setting the stage for this. He's writing this well before it happens, but he's setting the world stage. Theologians say that Isaiah 9 is the prophecy of the coming of a Messiah that will bring peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. And justice to all nations and all people. Verse 3 talks about the freedom the Messiah will bring to oppressed nations. I'll read it again. It says, the people who walked in darkness, the people who walked in darkness, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Isaiah is saying that when Messiah comes, all races, classes, rich, poor, black, white, free, gluten-free, Syrian, Nigerian, indigenous people, any culture that has ever been oppressed or ever felt like 
They were left in the dark. The Prince of Peace will come for them and will give them light, which is guidance, and will also give them peace, which is justice. And the Messiah isn't coming to provide just therapy to handle the stresses of life, but the Messiah is coming to unite all nations in justice. So in writing this, Isaiah leaves behind a clue for the rest of the world to pay attention and to look for the Messiah's arrival. And this is a promise. This is a promise of God for the world. And because it's a promise of God for the world, it's a prophecy. Old Testament prophecy is very hard for people to understand. So I, if I see the word prophecy and you're like, that's where I'm checking out. Don't check out yet. I understand. It's very hard for, for people to grasp this idea of uh, telling the future and those kinds of things. Um, but it's not as incomprehensible as you may think. And it's actually not just about telling the future. Uh, that may become the modern understanding of prophecy, but that's not really what it is um, about technically. So let me try to illustrate it. Um, in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, C.S. Lewis creates a beautiful kingdom called Narnia, right? And it's ruled by a righteous king, Aslan, the lion, right? And so uh, Lewis describes Narnia as being more real than reality itself. Uh, where did Lewis get inspiration for Narnia, you think? If you actually read about where he gets inspiration, uh, it comes from a series of mystical experiences. That's the best way to talk about that he has before conversion and after conversion to Jesus. So he has a few mystical experiences that he describes. And so one of them, he describes as a mystical feeling that was triggered by a childhood memory of him playing with a toy made from tin, of a tin can. Uh, and he explains that this, this mystical feeling that he had inside, it felt like it came not from years ago, but he says that it came from like centuries ago. That's how it felt to him. So this is how he actually describes it. Lewis says that it was a sensation of course, of desire, but of desire for what? Not certainly for a biscuit tin filled with moss, he's talking about the toy, nor even for my own past. And before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone. The whole glimpse withdrawn. The world turned commonplace again, or only stirred by a longing for the longing. Now, Lewis is sometimes hard to read. But what he's saying is that he had this feeling in that moment, and that memory triggered it. But it was, this, it was this, not just the memory itself, but it was this idea that there's something in the longing for a desire that he knows is intrinsic to who he is. He's actually talking about this shared longing that all human beings have. It's hard to pinpoint. It's hard to pinpoint. But it feels more real than what's in front of us. And it feels more ancient than our own personal history, this longing inside of us. As a matter of fact, the writer of Ecclesiastes, which is a book in the Bible, uh, he's thought to be one of the, the, the wisest men in the world. He writes this, that uh, God has put eternity in man's heart. That the span of eternity, somehow, someway, God has fit that inside of you. This longing is really the common thread that connects all human beings throughout history. So why is Lewis's idea of Narnia and his idea of Aslan so compelling to us? Like, have you seen the movies? Like, I'm, the books, you know, I've read, uh, 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 what's the language in the wardrobe? I didn't read the rest, so uh, don't hate on me, but, uh, and I tried the, the uh, Tolkien's uh, trilogy, but I'm working on it still. Um, but if you, okay, so maybe you're not a book person, but have you seen the movies? Like, there's something about that you're just like, that's so awesome. 
got to be a better world than, than this one that we're in right why, why is that so compelling to us? What, why do you think? I think it's compelling to us because it actually speaks to this longing that we have for a better home and a better king. There's actually something that longs inside of us for something like an army, for something like an awesome king. And so you get like an Obama and you get like a Trudeau and you're like, hey, they're very charismatic and they're very outgoing and, you know, I'm like, I would like them to be, you know, our world leader. But you know at the end of the day that you're probably going to be disappointed. There's something inside of us that we're longing for a better home and a, a better king. But there's something that Narnia and, and Aslan, it actually connects with us more. Not just because we are hoping for it to happen, but there's something inside of us that we know, that we know, we know that there's got to be, that Narnia has to be true. Like, it has to be true. That's the only reason why it's so compelling. Like, there's got to be that Aslan. That's the only reason why he's so, such a compelling figure. So there's something inside of us that just not hopes for it, but you just you know that's got to be true. Let me share from my own experience um, to illustrate that. Ethnically, uh, I'm a Hmong person, so uh, that means that like I speak Hmong, uh, I am Hmong. I'm not Chinese, so I get very I get yelled at all the time every time I go to a dinner stuff and they're talking to me in Chinese and oh you're a very bad Chinese boy. No, no, it's because I'm not Chinese. I'm Hmong. Uh, I don't speak. Chinese. There are 10 million Hmong people in the world. To give you an idea what that is, there's about 15 million Jewish people uh, in the world. So we're a nation with no state. That means we have no country, and that means that we have no national leaders. Um, so we have no Narnia, we have no Aslan. And as a consequence, Hmong people, we have very visibility uh, everywhere we go. Um, as a matter of fact, there are people that have countries and leaders that have higher visibility than us because they have countries and leaders. And so what happens is that Hmong people, wherever we go, we end up blending in everywhere we go, which is kind of cool. You know, I can do something really terrible and say, oh, blame it on those bad Chinese people, or you know, blame it on the Japanese, or I can't blame it on white people because I don't look white. <laughs> but we blend in everywhere we go, uh, essentially. And so being Hmong is kind of like being this awkward kid who, you know, you're, you're going to middle school, and then at the end of the day, you see all other kids, they get to go home to be with their parents, and they get to go live in their homes, but you're stuck at school with the janitor <laughs> because you don't have a home, and you don't have parents, you don't have national leaders. And that's how it feels a lot of times to be a home person. It's almost like we're an orphan nation. It's almost like being an orphan as a nation. It's like a, a, a group of siblings that we, we just, we don't have a home, we don't have parents. And when you're in an orphan nation, you begin hoping that one day someone will come and adopt you and give you land. As a matter of fact, when I get back with my people, the primary conversation is, when are we going back? And I'm tired of this conversation. There's a lot of history, but when are we going back to Laos to take back the land that rightfully belongs to us? That becomes a conversation that a lot of nationalistic Hmong people have. And what happens with orphan nations is that because they don't have land and they don't have a leader, they act like an orphan. So they begin to fight for things. And they, we've seen this in the world, they will wage war to steal land from other people. This is the nature of orphan nations. Why? Because that's what orphans do. Nobody's ever given it to you. You have to earn everything that you have. You have to take everything. You have to prove yourself. You have to do things on your own. Mom and dad weren't there to teach you. You don't have a house. You don't have a place at home. 
You have to create it for yourself. And that tends to be what orphan nations do. That's why there's so much fighting. And it's as if God has actually put this desire for Narnia, this desire for national leaders, inside of nations. So, we may not feel that way. But for those who don't have it, this is one of their cries in their hearts. And so for most people, like for me, I'm thinking, I don't, we don't need to be like Canada. We don't need to be, we don't even need to be like the Philippines. Like just give us Puerto Rico or something. <laughs> give, us, yeah, give us a small island. Right. You see, Isaiah, he's not just Isaiah's not just writing about this mystical longing. He's writing about this nationalistic, this existential longing that people have for home and for leaders. This is about identity. This is about destiny. So there are worse things in life than being an orphan living at a boarding school. Uh, but everything inside of us knows that it's better to be a kid with a strong family and a beautiful house. And every nation longs for an Aslan. Every nation longs for an army. So you might not believe in prophecy, but you can probably begin to see and understand and believe what the prophecy is talking about. The Messiah is coming, and he will adopt us into a better home. A home, he says in verse 4, where the yoke and the staff and the rod of oppression is broken. A home, he says in verse 5, where you don't have to go to war and all your weapons are destroyed and burned in the fire. A home, he says in verse 6, where you're led by someone as gentle as a child, but also who is wonderful, mighty, everlasting, and a commander of peace. Think about this dream life. As we engage uh, St. Jamestown this week, uh, an area of 25,000 people, most of them new Canadians. As we engage our Syrian refugee family that we uh, have been learning to love, who's new to Canada. Keep in mind Isaiah's story. Keep in mind that Isaiah chapter 9 is our spiritual story. But what Isaiah is actually writing about is their actual real life story. That's the context in which Isaiah is writing these things. That's the context in which the Prince of Peace is coming to the world. Their Messiah is Aslan. And their homeland is Narnia. And as we engage people this week, you know, not just in St. Jamestown, but all over Toronto, 52% of people in Toronto do not live in the place of, uh, in their place of birth. There's in, in St. Jamestown, if I understand the stats correctly, you know, more, uh, the majority population of those who live in St. Jamestown are not uh, native to Canada, which means that we have a boatload of people that are looking for Narnia and Aslan. And you know where that is. You know who he is. The Messiah raises a standard of justice for all global leaders in the world and for all nations. And so the list that Isaiah rounds off in this passage is actually, it's a standard that he puts up for all other nations, all global leaders. He's challenging all kingdoms and all governments, saying, can you be as righteous as the Prince of Peace, the commander of equality, the giver of justice? Can your government beat its swords into plowshares? Can they stop the bloodshed of innocent men from running in the streets? Can they stop the money of corrupt men from lining pockets? Can your government rise up to defend the cause of the oppressed? Will they welcome the foreigner? Does your government know the moral fabric of fabric of society isn't built around the bourgeois, but it's also not built around Bohemians? Does your government 
get that black lives matter and that indigenous lives matter? Can they abandon the bottom line of oil lines if they understand that it's poisoning and uprooting indigenous communities? Has your government become so conservative that it's forgotten about the poor and the foreigner? Or so liberal that if it stands for everything, it will eventually fall and stand for nothing? Is Canada and America, are we an orphan nation? Have we ever stolen anything that wasn't ours? Who's our Messiah? These are political questions. I'm, I'm not asking political questions. These are spiritual questions. Could Western nations really just be rich and wealthy? That's not a political statement. It's a spiritual statement. Who's our Messiah? Who's our Messiah? In case you didn't know, in case it hasn't been made clear yet, uh, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Aslan. Jesus is the Messiah. His kingdom in heaven and on earth is Maria. As a mom person, I've learned to accept that. I've learned to accept that I may never have a nation where the leaders look and eat and talk on me. And I'm cool with that. Because I'm cool with the idea that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the Messiah. I'm cool with the kingdom of God being our final place. When Jesus came as very son, he was no Hitler, he was no Mao, he had no pomp, he had no entourage. Jesus came quietly and he began a subversive initiative to adopt nations into his country. And he still flies under the radar of every kingdom of this world, slowly bringing transformation to nations, one heart, one soul at a time. Why one heart at a time? Because Jesus sees systemic evil so much more accurately than we do in any of our government leaders. He sees systemic evil and unjust structures so much more accurately and so much more succinctly than we ever could. In Jesus' way, change the society is it's not a broad, top-down government program. God's first step in bringing justice isn't to send his general to overthrow governments as a military leader. God sends his son to overthrow hearts as a servant leader. So do you realize that every great leader in the world has asked its citizens to give their life for their kingdom? But the, the gospel, the story of the Bible is different from that. Because the story of the Bible, the gospel actually says that Jesus is the greatest leader in the world. And he puts his life on the line. Not just so that strangers and foreigners like us could become citizens of his kingdom, but he puts his life on the line so that strangers and foreigners like us can actually become, the word is, ambassadors in his kingdom. And if you trust him, and if you trust this message, it'll transform your heart. It'll transform you. This is the message that is subversively transforming individuals from virtually everything 
every nation on this planet today. You see, we, we have the same potential for evil that all of the tyrannical leaders, you can list five or six off the top of your head. We, I'm not saying we're as evil as them. But it's like, you know, we have the same potential for evil as they do. Because evil just starts with this idea in an individual's heart, that I just want to have things happen my way. Have you ever had that thought before, by the way? Yes, any confirmation? Have you ever just said, if I just had things my way? Okay, you're getting pretty close to tyranny at that point. Because uh, in some ways, that's where it all begins. It's not like this huge, you know, Nazi regime that's being launched. It starts with one or two people who say, if we just had it on our way, guys, we're not too far from that. It all starts with my heart. Your heart is a tyrant. And the only rule that can stop this tyrant is the Prince of Peace. Jesus himself. And this is what Jesus says. How does he do this? How does Jesus work to stop tyrants? Let's read this passage together. These are Jesus' words himself. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. He goes on to say, I think we got some more there, right? These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do <coughs> sorry, not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, troubled, neither let them be afraid. And in this passage we see three things that Jesus gives to us that overcomes the tyrant in our hearts. Number one is this that Jesus gives peace of adoption. He gives peace of adoption. Jesus said that I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is the peace that comes with total and unconditional acceptance. The peace of adoption lets you know that in Christ Jesus, you are not enemies with God because he's become your father. You have peace with God in Jesus. When you are in Christ, you have a good father and all of his blessings. And so because you have all of his blessings, you don't have to live a life of jealousy and envy anymore. I have everything that God's ever planned for me to have, so I don't need to be jealous of people. You see, the tyrant inside is being quelled because you realize God's already given you everything that he's planned for you. You don't need to be like the kid looking inside somebody else's house and saying, man, I wish I had their Christmas tree, and I wish I had their presents, because in Christ, you already have everything that God's ever desired for you. The doctor says, I have all that I need in Christ. So you don't need to compare with people. And when you stop comparing with people, guess what happens? You stop being anxious. Most of our anxiety is because you compare yourself. We compare ourselves to people, isn't it? That's the peace that Jesus gives to us. In fact, Jesus says that he and his Father will make their home in you. Meaning that they will bring with them this peace of ah, home at last. They'll bring that and put it inside of you. And if you have the peace of home, then it doesn't matter where you live, in the city, outside of the city. Um, you know, it doesn't matter your job, your, your career, even a new field, all together. Wherever you go, whatever you do, it will be and feel like a home for you. The tyrant of worry and anxiousness 
can be put away. That's true peace. Secondly, is that Jesus gives the peace of obedience. The peace of obedience. The tyrant inside of us wants to conform to cultural standards and sometimes even self-imposed standards. Like you just know, you want to conform to the things that culture says is right and good and, and, and successful in the world. Standards. But see, Jesus says something different. He says, anyone who loves me will keep my word. When you love Jesus, obedience is the standard. Not cultural standards, but obedience becomes the standard when you love Jesus. So when you realize that the only standard for you in life isn't cultural or self-imposed, but what the loving Lord gives to you, then life becomes so much more simple. It's what we say at Trinity Life. It's here. Trust. Obey. The only standard that God has ever put on your life is to hear His voice, trust in Him, and obey Him. It's not to be like any other person in your field, any other person in your family. That's not a standard for you. For you, the standard is hear, trust, obey. So, God doesn't want you to do more than what He's asked, because when you do that, unrest comes. But neither should you do less than what God's asked of you, because unrest comes with that as well, as your conscience continues to, uh, to gnaw on you. Uh, something that I say to my kids, and I, you know, I. I don't, I'm not proud that I say this to my kids, but sometimes when I lecture them with a very loud voice, uh, I have to remind them that, hey, slow obedience is the same thing as no obedience. I'll get to that, Dad. Yeah, but I talked to you about that two weeks ago. Yeah, I'm going to get to it, though. Slow obedience is no obedience. Partial obedience is not obedience. You know, yeah, I did it, but my heart wasn't all the way into it. Half-hearted obedience isn't the same thing as full obedience. And so I want to pose a question, very gently, not to condemn anybody, but if your guilty conscience does, then hey, that's that's on you. But I have to ask myself, have I been half-heartedly obeying my Lord recently? Like, am I just going through the motions? Am I just kind of half-heartedly doing this? Or am I all in as much as I can? It's a good question to ask yourself. The third thing that Jesus gives to us, and uh, this is uh, probably one of the ones that we uh, neglect in terms of realizing how much you have, if you are a Christian or if you're a believer in Jesus, how much you have already. And that is that Jesus gives the peace of the Holy Spirit. There are times when you do your best to shut up the little tyrant living inside of you. You, know, you just say, shut up. I don't want to think that way. It's a negative, you know, what do they call it? The negative tape recorder that just keeps playing good. And you're just saying, shut up. You know, I don't want to think that way. And there's sometimes when you just can't make that shut up. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. Only the power of God can do it. And that's what Jesus has given to us. When you give Jesus control of your life, in return, you'll receive a resource that's better than any antidepressant and a counselor that's greater than any psychotherapist that you will ever see. And no matter how grim your situation gets, the Holy Spirit is always spurring you on to trust God. Holy Spirit's always saying, I know it's hard, but trust God. I don't know how to explain it. There are times in my life where I just feel like I'm throwing it all away. But you just know the Holy Spirit's saying, no, keep going. Trust God. Keep going. Oftentimes we're waiting for peace we're waiting for peace to come in order for us to trust in God. 
But peace usually comes as a result of trusting God. And it's the Holy Spirit that reminds us. Keep trusting, keep trusting. I want to call up the band. Um, I finished a lot faster than I thought it was. But I want to tell a story, a story that maybe some of you are familiar with. Um, and if you're not, um, it's a very compelling story. It's a story about a man whose name is Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a Chicago businessman. He had a lot of property and was very successful in what he did. Uh, he was living around the 19th century. And so in 1871, uh, there was a great fire in Chicago. And I don't know if you know anything about this fire, but, uh, you know, I love Toronto, but have you ever been to the Chicago waterfront? It beats Toronto hands down. Any member been there to Chicago waterfront? Okay. So we should be ashamed that our waterfront is not as good as Chicago's. <laughs> because we're in the same population, we have the same density, they just have a better waterfront. And the reason why they have a better waterfront is because the city burnt down in 1871, and so there's a chance to rebuild the city. So I'm not saying that Toronto should burn down, but I'm just saying those, those stinking high-rises just block our view of the waterfront, you know. Uh, and so Chicago figured this out uh, after the fire. So anyways, Spafford lost all of his investments during this, and it devastated him financially. To top that off, later that year, his son dies of scarlet fever. And so he was just such a, you know, kind of this tragic, like, uh, desperate, uh, depressed state. So he decided that he was going to send his wife, Anne, and his four daughters off to Europe, uh, to England specifically, to holiday there. And so he had some remaining financial things that he needed to get ordered before he left. And so he sent them, um, uh, and uh, they went out before him. So along the way, somewhere in the mid-Atlantic, um, there was a, uh, a sailing vessel that struck uh, their, their passenger car- carriage, passenger, whatever, their, their ship. <laughs> And so in the midst of that, uh, in that collision, and he killed 226 people from the ship, including all four of his daughters. And so his wife, Anne, who survived, made it to England, and she telegraphed him back in Chicago with uh, these two words, saved alone. So naturally, Stafford, he wanted to be with Anne, so he left Chicago and hopped on a ship, and he crossed over the same Atlantic and went over the same spot where his daughters had died, and it was in the midst of that trip that he passed the words to a very famous hymn that we sing in the church today, called It Is Well. And in this uh, song, or in his the process of him writing the song, it's him finding his soul. It's him finding the restlessness and the lack of peace, the anger, the frustration, the bitterness, the being upset at God, being upset at life, the lot in life that he felt like he had inherited that now was being stolen from. He's wrestling through those thoughts and those ideas through this hymn. And this is a hymn that we sing traditionally as a church uh, because it reminds us that regardless of whatever state that you are in, God is going to get you through. And if you've ever felt like, you know, even if, even if you're not a Christian and you haven't gone to church for a long time, but you just know, I'm going to get through this, I'm going to get through this, I'm going to get through this. Can I propose something? But have you ever been through a hard thing and you just felt internally there was something that was saying you're going to get through this? Can I propose that that may have been God speaking to you? That maybe have been the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God actually doing one with you. So this morning I thought that it would be fun to end our service, or not our service, but our sermon by singing this hymn together. 
And in the midst of singing this hymn, I want to invite you to consider making Jesus your Prince of Peace. To trust Him. That this morning, right now, you would make a clear decision to say, you know what? The strife that I see in a level is just as loud and it's just as harsh in my own life. God, I need you. I really do need you, my brother. We will invite you to stand up. Let's sing it together. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.